Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Welcome to the Crop Watch Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Bartles, a cropping systems educator with Nebraska Extension. And today I will be joined by Bob Wright and we'll be talking about seed selection for insect control. Thank you for joining me today, Bob. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. Trying to keep warm. (laughs) Yes, it is cold out there. Can you tell us a little bit about your role in Extension? Well, I have a, I'm based on campus here in Lincoln. I have a research and extension joint appointment. I work mostly in field crops, uh, corn and soybeans most of the time in both research and extension programming. Great. Today we wanted to talk about seed selection for insect control. So when we think about seed selection for insect control, we're primarily talking about seed treatments on our corn and soybean seeds. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Okay, well, the current chemistries we have provide protection against some early season insects in both corn and soybeans. Most of them are soil-borne insects, such as wireworms and uh, white grubs and seed corn maggots and other things like that. Uh, They also provide some early season protection. They're systemic within the plant, so they provide some degree of protection for early emergence of seedlings. Uh, Typically, the above ground protection is limited to about 30 days after planting, so it's not season long, but can provide some early season protection. And so the question is, when do you want to use those? A couple of things, uh, particularly if you're going to be planting early and we have a cool, wet spring and there's going to be a slow slow germination and slow emergence, those are situations where you really need a seed protectant because there's a li- there's longer amount of time for the insects to feed on the plant before it emerges. And if in terms of seedlings, the plants aren't growing quickly because of cool weather, they're exposed to damage longer. The other issue would be if most of these, particularly the wireworms and uh, white grubs, many of them have a multi-year life cycle. One other thing would be field history. If you've had problems with similar insects before, that would be a, something to key in on. One, one insect in particular on soybeans, is, well, both corn and soybeans, the seed corn maggot, we've had some issues with the last couple of years. And this has multiple generations in the year. It, the adult is a small fly. They're attracted to lay eggs on decaying organic matter. So if you've recently added manure to a field or have tilled in a cover crop or uh, previous, even just winter annual weeds that you till in before planting, that attracts the flies to lay eggs. And the small maggots that hatch out will feed on germinating seeds and seedlings. And we've had some issues with, with soybeans in particular the last couple of years where we've had heavy damage from seed corn maggots. And I guess another issue that reminds me of is that even in some cases, we had damage from seed corn maggots where we had a seed treatment. So for all these soil insects or insects in general, if we have very heavy pressure, it may overcome the seed treatments. But with low to moderate pressure, sometimes you may not see much damage at all. It would be very important. Yeah, we talked about also seed selection for disease control, but it just goes to show it's very important to 
be able to identify what pests you might have in your field and denoting that because that can help you when you go to select your seed and can really help you in the long run by curbing it instead of trying to react after we've planted and trying to see what maybe foliar insecticide you can apply. Well, and that's a good point I didn't mention is that the benefit of the seed treatments for the soil insects is that there's no post-plant control option for wireworms and white grubs or seed corn maggots in the soil. If you don't do something at planting time, choice is either to replant or just continue with a lower plant population. The other issue with seed corn maggots can, if you are applying manure or you plan on tilling in a cover crop or tilling in a lot of winter annual weeds, if you can wait a couple of weeks after tillage before you plant, that can give time for the the flies to lay eggs and the maggots to complete their development before you plant. Sometimes planting ahead can avoid the problem. Sometimes you're in a rush to get the crop in and you may not be able to do that, but if you you can plan ahead, that will help as well. Yeah. Like you said, it's just important to be able to identify what the problem is so you you know what you're dealing with and making note of what fields you may have had issues in the past and selecting those seed treatments can really help you. Cause like you said, down in the soil, that is your only line of defense. Your uh, foliar insecticides aren't going to give you control in that aspect. Great. I've heard that we have some resistance in some of our BT traits and corn. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. In terms of the BT traits, we have different traits for both above ground and below ground insects. The above ground traits that we rely on in in Nebraska mostly are for Western bean cutworm, and we don't think about it, but also European corn borer is still around in some areas. uh, But we have seen resistance develop to one of the the BT traits for Western bean cutworm, referred to as CRY1F. This is more common in in Southwest Nebraska, but we can, to some extent, throughout the state. And so the issue is if you have, if you have a history of problems with Western bean cutworms, you need to use, there is one effective BT trait available uh, for Western bean cutworm. It's referred to as Viptera trait, which is still highly effective. The uh, CRY1F trait is less effective in a lot of areas. And uh, if you're relying only on that, you need to scout those fields as if they're non-BT because you could get damaging populations of Western bean cutworm that you need to control with insecticides. I guess maybe back up a little bit. It's really important to know which specific traits you have in your hybrids. Sometimes that isn't readily available in your information from the seed companies. They may talk generally about above ground or below ground protection, but you really need to get to the level of which specific proteins are in those those hybrids because we are getting resistance to some of them uh, in Nebraska. And there's a publication called the Handy BT Trait Table that's produced by entomologists at Michigan State and Texas A&M. And it's usually updated annually. It hasn't been updated yet for 2021. But if you do an internet search on Handy BT Trait Table, be sure you're looking at either the 2020 or 2021 version. And that is a really complete source of information about all the different BT families or trait families and what traits they have in terms of the specific BT proteins. And we need to understand that in terms of resistance management. 
It also even has information about herbicide tolerant traits as well for these hybrids. It's a one page double sided publication. It's getting pretty small print now to fit all that into one document, but it's all on one, it can be on one sheet of paper. So that's one thing you wanna look at. Be aware of what traits you have on your hybrids because you may need to supplement some of the BT traits with insecticides, depending on which traits they have on the existence or resistance in your area. Mm-hmm. So is there, as far as the BT traits, is CRY? 1F. Is that the main BT trait that we rely on in this area, or is there several several to choose from? Well, in terms of the above ground, for the Western bean cutworm, there's only two different BT proteins that are active against that. And actually, Western bean cutworm is also not affected by the foliar BT sprays that, that we have used in the past or is used in organic agriculture. Okay. The other issue is the below ground traits for corn rootworm. And there are multiple, actually, there's four different proteins now available for rootworms. And they're all in the cry families. And the, there's three different proteins that are on the cry three family. And we have evidence of resistance to all three of them in, in certain parts of Nebraska. Not every field, but there are areas where there's some resistance to the CRY3 proteins. And so the issue with that, there are hybrids that have two active proteins against rootworms. So that's, that's a general recommendation. And again, it's important to know what's going on in your field in terms of previous field history. Obviously, is this going to be corn after corn? If it is, did you have a lot of rootworm beetles in the field last August? Did you have damage to the roots from rootworms? You have to know something of field history. If you had high pressure in the past and you're planting back to corn, you need to be aware that you need to have probably something that has two different active proteins against rootworms and also be prepared to potentially supplement that with insecticide use either at planting time or as a foliar treatment against adults for silk clipping. And I guess the other thing with rootworms, if you can periodically rotate, that's our first recommendation. That really is the most effective way to reduce rootworm populations is crop rotation. And then if you need to grow corn after corn, consider either BT traits or insecticides if you have a history of problems with rootworms. And I know... Some of our companies have refuge in a bags that where we have some seeds that don't carry the BT trait where most of them do carry the BT trait. And I'm just curious from an entomologist perspective, has that helped slow down our, our resistance to that? You have to understand the history of when we introduced BT traits. Initially, we had to have a certain percentage of the field, a solid block or large strips planted to non-BT. And EPA found over time that growers are not doing this practice. And so as a compromise, the the so-called refuge in the bag was introduced because by the corn, the refuge is automatically in this bag. Mm -hmm. So you don't have a choice. Actually, probably the block refuge, if people would use it, would be in theory uh, better, but the refuge in the bag is better because all growers who use the BT trade have some refuge in the field. Okay. I know that resistance isn't just a issue that we deal with with insects. It's across all of our pests 
from diseases to the resistance that we're seeing in some of our weeds, the resistance that we've already seen in some of our diseases. So that's just a factoid of, of monocultures, right? So I guess sort of the take-home message on rootworms again is to understand your field history. Do you have a, is it a heavy rootworm pressure situation that's going to have some different management options than if it's corn after soybeans in terms of choices? And if you are planting corn after corn, be ready for to use multiple options to control rootworms if you have, have a history of problems in that field. And rootworms is a, a problem that we see across Nebraska, correct? That's a pest that we deal with across the state. Right. It doesn't do as well in some of the sandier soils. The larvae don't survive well in sandier soils. They like to have some, they like silty loam soils uh, better. Actually, the higher percentage of sand in the soil reduces the larval survival. And a theory is that it actually abrades the the integument or the skin of the rootworm larvae so they lose water. But it's potentially a problem anywhere we grow corn in Nebraska almost, especially if we have corn after corn. Mm -hmm. And then in northeast Nebraska, we have uh, another species, the northern corn rootworm, which is still is less common, but it's in the state, it's most common in northeast Nebraska. It has a similar life cycle to the western corn rootworm Although it has one complication is that a certain percentage of the population, the eggs hatch out after two winters rather than one winter. And uh, if we have a high enough percent, the population with this, what you call extended diapause, it can get around crop rotation. Generally, it tends to decline in areas with continuous corn and the Western corn rootworm is more common but there are areas of Northeast Nebraska. It's more common if you get up into South Dakota and in Minnesota, but Northeast Nebraska, we have populations of Northern corn rootworms as well. And what kind of um, damage does this insect do? Okay, both rootworms, uh, the main, as you can guess by the common name, they feed on the roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they larvae chew away at the root tips and come July, you may not have much of a root system left if you have a heavy pressure from rootworms and we can get lodging with the right weather conditions. And uh, this could obviously interfere with harvest at the end of the year, as well as reducing yield potential because it interferes with the plant's ability to take up water and uh, nutrients. And then the adults can feed on silks if they're, they emerge at the right time, particularly in seed corn or uh, high value white corn or popcorn, uh, sometimes the silk clipping issue is really important. Typically in field corn, it isn't as big of an issue, but certainly hot, very severe, can interfere with pollination. Yeah, and with Nebraska being number one in popcorn, it is an issue that our growers, I'm sure, are well aware of. Great. I guess I forgot to mention, we also have insecticide resistance issues with Western corn rootworms. There's been research done in Nebraska to document that the insecticide bifenthrin, which has been used in capture and other products in the past, we have relatively high levels of resistance to that in Southwest Nebraska and Southwest Kansas, and it diminishes as we go further east in the state. But uh, we have a long history of insecticide resistance in Western corn rootworm in Nebraska and other states in the U.S. So that's another issue to think about in terms of, again, not using the same insecticide repeatedly in an area. 
the issue with bifenthrin. We used it for a long time because initially it was one of the few, it was a highly effective pesticide against spider mites. It also was effective against uh, European corn borer and Western bean cutworm, as well as rootworm beetles. And it could be used in the soil against larvae. So it was used a lot in parts of Nebraska and Kansas where we have a lot of continuous corn. And over time, we've had development of resistance to that insecticide as well. Yes, it just just shows how important it is to have a, a good integrative pest management strategy to try to use multiple different strategies to try to slow these pests down and resistance that they're developing. Well, is there anything else you want our listeners to know moving into the 2021 growing season? Well, I guess, yeah, the main overall message we talked about is understand the field history of your local fields in terms of what problems you've had in the past. Some of these are going to carry over from year to year, and and you need to plan for those. Uh, We also have some migratory insects that might, particularly some of the caterpillars and soybeans, uh, don't overwinter in Nebraska, but fly up each year, and some other insects as well. One thing to do is uh, check our newsletter, CropWatch, cropwatch.unl.edu. We'll be reporting pest problems as they occur this summer and try to give you the best recommendations based on what's going on this summer. Yes, definitely check out CropWatch. We try to keep everything very timely on that website of emerging diseases, pests, insects, resistance, upcoming programs. So it is a great resource. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope everybody enjoys their winter season and kicks off a good 2021 growing season. 